0: Welcome to The Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we're featuring three excerpts from the 2021 Portland Book Festival. Every year, the Portland Book Festival presents a diverse range of writers who have recently published novels, works of nonfiction, short story, or poetry collections. It features books for readers of all ages, from toddlers to adults. There were over 50 writers in the 2021 Portland Book Festival, and they hailed from all over the country. Some were among our most famous writers at work today, and some had just published their first book. All were accomplished artists with powerful stories and ideas, stories that can illuminate our understanding of ourselves and our world. In this first segment of our show, writer Genevieve Hudson talks with Brandon Taylor about his book, Filthy Animals. Both writers hail from the American South, but now live in different parts of the country. And so the conversation moves through the themes of intimacy, artistry, and identity with a distinctly Southern lens. Here's Hudson.
1: So I was hoping that we could start this conversation with you sharing uh, with us and with the audience members that maybe haven't gotten a chance to read the collection yet. what Filthy Animals is about, or at least what are the central themes or questions that you think this collection is circling? And if you can give us a little bit of information too about the structure of the collection, that would be a great way to start.
2: Certainly. Yeah. So Filthy Animals is a collection of stories. Um, the the central spine of which is I think it's five or five or six stories that are interconnected, and they follow a young man named Lionel who has just gotten out of a Stannis psychiatric care facility and he arrives at a potluck that a friend is throwing and he's really anxious about getting back into the world and so in that first story it's you know it's kind of like the first party you go to after not going to a party for a very long time and you know we follow him and this couple of dancers he gets involved with over a couple of very snowy days in Madison, Wisconsin. And then in between each of those stories is what I call like an interstitial story. And there's are just stories about people living their lives. And all the stories in the book center on themes of loneliness and caregiving and health and mental, mental health struggles and depression and anxiety and things like that. And so to me, it's a book about how to repatriate to the world after a long absence from it.
1: Mm. Which feels very apt um, to be able to <laughs> engage with a collection like that in this time where we all, I think, you know, can relate to what it's like to re-enter and struggling with some, you know, mental health stuff that's coming at this time. And yeah, it felt very relevant, I would say. Coming into reading this collection, I was not aware of the linked stories. Um, and reading Potluck, I was so engaged and immersed in this first story that we get in the collection, and with Lionel as a character and the relationship that he's developing with Charles and Sophie was so charged and I was sad to leave these characters behind. And when I encountered Flesh, which was the third, you know, after an interstitial story, and saw Charles again and thought, oh wow, here they are again. then you know flip forward and, and realize like these are going to come throughout the whole book. I was so delighted and I was kind of bad in that I read all of the link stories back to back. I couldn't stop. I was so interested in this world that you created. Um, and then I went back and I reread them with the interstitials and I saw how those moments created some breath and um, worked in their own way to you know engage with the topics and the structure. and. So I was kind of curious um, to hear from you, when you were thinking of how to structure the collection and you knew you had this like, great amount of work and stories around you know, these three characters, were they always separate stories? How did you decide to separate them? Like, What was that process like for you?
2: I mean, I think that that was one of the more difficult parts of the book was figuring out how to put it together. And, you know, I mean, looking at it now, it seems obvious. And it seems like it should have always been that way. But I tried a bunch of different configurations. Like, I think the first thing I tried was putting them all together as one mass in the book. And so I was gonna have like, the Lionel Charles Sophie stories all in a row and then put the interstitial stories like at the end. And that just made the book feel very diffuse and unorganized. And and so then I tried, you know, putting them in pairs and then trios and all this other stuff. And then it just seemed like I was making the problem much harder than it needed to be. And I thought, well, it seems obvious that you should just split them up. Like just do one, just alternate, have this braided structure and try that. But then I thought, well, that's so obvious. Of course, that's not gonna work. But then of course it ended up being the thing that that did work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I landed on the structure of the book after a lot of experimentation and trial and error. And I guess I should have just started with the most obvious structure there was, which is this alternating toggling um, structure. And I, I do think that the alternating structure does bring something to the book because it lets those interstitial stories modulate things in the linked narrative that otherwise would feel overpowering or too on the nose. And it does create room in the book for the reader to to breathe and for the story to breathe and grow and change and find little nuances and cadences and stuff and so you know it's the most obvious structure in the world I guess but it really really worked and I thought well this seems like the only way it's going to to function
1: yeah sometimes the most the simplest ways can elude us at first. Yeah, I, you know, I kind of mentioned this, but I did really see how having those stories come in the middle of the larger narrative, like really worked to bring something larger to the collection as a whole and created this really nice echo throughout it too. I think I just have a real obsessive mind. So once I got started, I just had to know what was going on. So I am really fascinated by your writing process. I think since I heard that you wrote your novel, Real Life, in five weeks, that was so interesting to me about, like, how a mind can do that and how a mind can produce, like, such a, I mean, multidimensional, complex, like, work in such a compressed amount of time. And I heard you speaking a little bit about when you wrote the stories in this collection. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said that you wrote them before you went to graduate school at, at Iowa. And you, you, um, Said that you didn't think you could have written these stories after being at Iowa, and I was curious about that process a little bit because I think thinking about making work and you know taking on an art making process and as we learn more about craft, kind of what possibilities are lost to us and you know what can be narrowed and what's gained in that like deepening of our relationship with craft and whatever it is that we're working in. So I was hoping you could speak a little bit about that process of. Creating these stories.
2: Certainly. Yeah. The, um, the first versions of the bulk of the stories were written right after the 2016 election. I think I wrote them in I think literally the week after the election I wrote the Lionel Troll Sophie stories. And and you know, those stories came out and they were the i felt like the first time i'd written like a real like something real like real stories <laughs> in a sense and i felt very very proud of them but when i went to graduate school i just feel like i learned i mean i didn't learn a lot in the actual classrooms but i did learn a lot just from 2 years of thinking very deeply about writing and and writing a lot and and Having arguments with people about stories and what mattered to me in, in stories and stuff. And I emerged from that program, I think, like a steelier, like more brutal writer. And when I looked at the the stories that I'd written before graduate school, they felt very romantic and very gestural, and they felt very naive to me. And so when it came time to revise the book, I was ready to just get in there and blow up all the stories and change them and make them feel like the kinds of things I was writing, you know, in 2020, 2019, 2020 or something like that. And my editor and my agent had to like claw me off of the book after a certain point because I I had so disfigured the stories and they were like, these stories, you know, like they weren't the same kind of technical wizardry that I was capable of after two years of graduate school, but there was something alive in them and there was something vivid and true to my my nature in them. And I I should preserve that as much as possible and not just try to like import every new technique I'd learned. Like, like I should preserve what was special about those early versions of the stories. And so then there was a long process of trying to reconcile the technique and the the mastery I had acquired with the what was special in those more naive versions of the stories. And I do think that there was there's just something, you know, when you're young and you're craft and you don't know what you're doing and you just like do a thing and you don't over-interrogate it and you like your ability to just like let things lie as a young writer is like, I do think that's something that I lost as I got better at writing and I now fuss at things so much and <laughs> I'm always like looking for the thing that's wrong. And I feel like that is one of the things that is like maybe gone slightly wrong in my process, Is I want to get back to that earlier version of myself where i could just trust my instincts more and just like let the story be and let the story find the messy maybe naive shape it needs in order to get across and and protect the emotional vividness of the of the story so yeah i mean the revision process was was mostly just me like learning how to let the stories be (laughs) instead of trying to endlessly improve them
1: Yeah, there can be like a a purity of heart that we have as beginners that, yeah, and sometimes I can even see that in like a a rough draft or first draft of something. If you can take, you know, what you know away and just let yourself be on the page, that is, can be hard to get back to, I think. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the way you write relationships, which is, um, you know, so beautiful and so complex and... So many, if not all of your stories, or most of the writing I've written, I've read from you, circles around um, relationship. And most of the relationships that I see happen in your stories, there's like a yearning for closeness, and yet in that closeness, or with the closeness, there comes a threat. And maybe that's a threat of violence, or it's a threat of some kind of like unknown, ominous something that will be lost with the closeness, or some kind of bargaining that is at play. And, you know, you see that with Lionel and Charles and Sophie. You see that with Milton and Nolan and Filthy Animals. Um, You see that with Simon and Harchus and and, um, another story in the book. And in all of these uh, stories that talk about relationships, there's one that stood out as a little bit different to me, and that was Anne of Cleves. The relationship between the two female uh, protagonists in that story, uh, Sigrid and Marta, is a little bit different. There's more of like a straightforward intimacy. There's less strain on the relationship. It's more of a true love story that ends in a note that feels, dare I say, happy. (laughs) Or it feels as though there is something that that they're able to find in each other that feels settled. And I was curious about what it was about these two characters or about this story that allowed you to look at a relationship in this way.
2: Yeah. I mean, that story is very often the story that people are like, this is my favorite story. And I, you know, when I was in grad school, I had two thesis advisors, Jess Walter and Tom Drury, and both of them, they were very, very different. And, but the thing that they both said was, you have a lot of stories about relationships, but only one love story, and that's Anne of Cleves. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that is that is true. That is very, very true. That is the one love story that I have written, perhaps. And, you know, I mean, the, I always think of that story as such a gift because I was sitting in Prairie Lights, the, the independent bookstore in Iowa City, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny if you were on a first date and someone said, which of Henry VIII's wives do you most relate to? And I thought that would be such a very informative question. And I thought someone should write that story. And then I thought, no, 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 I should write that story. So I went home and sat down at my computer and had a first draft of that story in like 45 minutes. Like it never happens like that. Like it. I was like, wow, this story just like flowed out of me. And right from the very beginning, like that story. And I also think that that story maybe wouldn't exist without Garth Greenwell, um, who was always having very serious conversations with me about the importance and yet the difficulty of taking happiness very, very seriously and trying your best to to take happiness seriously is like a, a a worthy subject of art, happiness and love. And after a long time of writing really brutal stories about people who were always giving parts of themselves away to find love or whatever, I thought, I'm just gonna let these two people be in love and I'm gonna let them, the central drama of that story be the complications of being a person with a personality (laughs) and like trying to love another person with their personality. And like, how do you integrate that into a life and into a relationship? Because like that in and of itself is like such an interesting thing to me. Like how do two disparate people come to share their lives together, you know? And yeah, the story came out in sort of one big, one big rush and it's very seldom that i read back my own stories and and can like enjoy them because normally you're like picking them apart or you you have to like read them so many times that you never want to read them again but i sometimes come back to that story because it just i don't know it makes me feel good it's like a warm it's like a warm hug of a story (laughs)
1: Yeah, it did feel like a warm hug of a story, I um, and I, you know, was really delighted that it was in the collection, and it felt like this little reprieve, but at the same time, it felt very much a part of of the other stories that, that it was next to. Um, so we're both from Alabama. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and some of these stories are set in Alabama, and especially Filthy Animals, the title story to me was... The closest I've ever read to something that truly like spoke to my experience of like being a high schooler in Alabama, I just, you know, I really felt the presence of, I think I'm gonna, I was wondering if I was gonna do this, but I'm gonna read like just a few sentences from that that just took me straight into what it was like to be a teenager going to what you call a burner. Um, I'm gonna write, I'm just gonna paint this scene for us in your words. you say that um, you know this is the two characters, um, Nolan and Milton. They're this is you know they're about to go uh, into this experience. So a burner means that quote there will be ten to fifteen people they vaguely know, in kerosene-soaked rags, torched in metal barrels, cheap whiskey, cheap beer for the Christians, coke, Molly, and weed for the true believers. Heavy bass pumping from the mutter trucks. Kendrick and Luke Bryan and some kind of awful mashup like a diversity poster, Tommy Boy cologne, white polos, wallabies, and dark denim turned white in the crotch and ass from wear. Exhausting. Um, I especially love that last <laughs> sentence. Exhausting. Um, it was just such a time and a place that I was really transported to, and I I never see that rendered in fiction. So I also just wanted to thank you for that and. Also, just touch a little bit on being from the South and the rich history of storytelling that comes from, you know, Southern writers and this kind of oral tradition that exists in Southern states, and I'm curious to know two things. One is um, if you see yourself as a Southern writer, you know, a lot of your work is set in the Midwest and, you know, you lived all over the country, but I wondered if you identified in that way or if you identified with writing into a Southern tradition.
2: Well, first of all, thank you for. I feel like you're the first person from Alabama who I've spoken to about this book who like gets. Aside from like my my dearest friend in the world who I talk to on the phone all the time, but I, when I was writing that that those sentences into the book, I was like, people from Alabama are going to know exactly what I'm talking about because this is such a this is like such a thing. Those wallabies, those jeans, those po- they know they will know they will understand me. So I'm I'm so glad you received that. Um, I do consider myself a Southern writer, and I do consider myself writing into a Southern tradition. I feel like you can't write about the weather the way that as much as I write about the weather and not consider yourself like a Southern writer. Um, that that does to me feel very much like the place I am writing out of, and you know, my 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 stories are often set in the Midwest, but they're often displaced Southerners to the Midwest, um, and yeah, and so. I do consider myself a southern writer and I mean this book I'm working on now is like a southern gothic novel set in Alabama. So I'm like working my way there slowly but surely through the books. Well
1: that's very exciting. I cannot wait for that. You know, how did growing up in Alabama or did it in impact the way you tell stories? So, you know, kind of speaking of this like oral tradition, you know, the way that we hear stories that are that come down from family members perhaps or just like being in a southern culture like did that do you think that influenced the way that you think in story or the language you use
2: yeah i mean i think that where it has the most impact is that for me the language like when i when i as a writer am writing and i go to reach for Meaning, or I go to reach like when my writing reaches like a certain velocity, it tends to escape into this lyric register. And my lyric register is always the King James Bible (laughs) because I grew up Baptist. And so for me, like I, I grew up in a rural place. And so I'm always deeply thinking about land and setting and trees and nature. And I'm often writing about, I'm always trying to write about ways of life that I don't often see in, in literature. And the other big thing that comes from growing up Southern and around Southern storytelling is a kind of laxness in in the way that I tell stories. I think that sometimes I don't feel as beholden to certain ideas about, you know, American narrative making (laughs) I don't I don't have much stock in the Yankee mode of storytelling and so I think my stories can sometimes be very lax and loose in their way and in their idiom and in their mode I I mix registers a lot in my my storytelling which is like very true of the way that I grew up hearing stories where someone would be talking like a preacher one minute and then talking like a bar owner the next like the next sentence away um and so I think also you know, I've always sounded like this. I've never had a really robust Southern accent. And so I think that just being deeply aware of the way that people sound and the ways that the way that you sound can betray you to people who know what to look for and that sort of thing. And so I think just growing up in a Southern milieu primes you to be very much like, Aware of stories and the power of stories, and there is a certain humor too. I think to my storytelling, a sort of brutal uh, humor, and I think that in the South, you like laugh to keep from crying sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know you're you're a funny writer. I think that's something that doesn't get talked about very often when people discuss your work because. There are such you know heavy topics that are also people want to get to and talk about and speak to, but your writing is very funny. Like I laugh when I read it. Even that passage I just read out loud. Like there is a there's a humor to just the way you're observing and looking at life and creating dynamics. So I definitely see that.
2: I feel like it's because most of the people who I, who interview me are not southern. Yeah. Like I think that you get it because yeah. because we are like from the same. Like you get it. Like you know the rhythms even and.
0: I feel very understood.
1: Yes, yes. I, I do get it.
0: <laughs> that was Genevieve Hudson in conversation with Brandon Taylor from the 2021 Portland Book Festival. The 2022 Portland Book Festival lineup has just been announced. The festival will take place Saturday, November 5th in downtown Portland. For more information about the author lineup and schedule, visit literary-arts.org. In this next segment of the show, we feature a cartoonist, Aminder Dhaliwal whose most recent book is Cyclopedia Exotica. It is a tour de force work about race, difference, and beauty that was originally born on Instagram and describes the lives of a Cyclops community living in our society. She joined us for the second night of the festival for an event we themed Freedom and was in conversation with OPB's Tiffany Kamhai.
3: So let's just start with how you built This world, the Cyclops and Two Eyed world. Can you describe how you put it together?
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, You know, the the world just kind of created itself from the initial idea. Um, I really enjoyed, like, exploring, you know, how the world would have to adapt if there was this entire um, portion of people who had one eye and had been ostracized for all this time, but now had emerged and reclaiming their space and were suddenly entering the marketplace and how the world truly adapts to when, like, they find a new audience. Um, So in in figuring that out, I then got to build on top of that, what products would be used in this world, um, places these people go, like what what does an optometrist look like? So it kind of builds itself all from this initial idea. I kind of think of it as just like a quick brainstorm that stems from this one idea. And I kind of just get to go along with it and and find little nuggets to work some jokes into. (laughs)
3: so why did you choose a uh, cyclops and not some other kind of humanoid monster um so
4: my my answer would be that there was some like hope that if i drew a one-eyed character that I would have a lot less to draw, <laughs> but that's not true. Uh, it's actually a lot harder to draw expressions when you have just one eye. So if I could go back in time, I would tell myself not to do that. But truly it was the creature archetype is fascinating to me. Um, I love it as a metaphor. I think it's a fascinating way to to kind of hide the baggage of when you wanna talk about race and you know bring in this creature to just like, that's fresh (laughs) and doesn't have that baggage attached and um, also get to through the Daily Strip style, get to use this comedy as this kind of Trojan horse to to get into these deeper storylines about these characters. But ultimately, the Cyclops really stemmed from the fact that they're fun to draw, that they're just almost close enough to the two eyes, but there's that one very, very visible difference.
3: Right. So the first comic strip um, in your book, it centers around Etna and she is, a cyclops who broke barriers for her kind by posing naked on the cover of a magazine that is not unlike a uh, Playboy. And uh, two characters find an original copy of this magazine at a thrift store, and I thought that we could do a little reading of this comic strip. Oh yes,
4: absolutely. The way a graphic novels should be read, you know, yes.
3: with a friend
4: right. from like <laughs> two different places. <laughs>
3: Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> um, so, this is called uh, Latia and Perry Shop. And I am going to play the character of Latia.
4: Yeah, I'll be Perry. This is the uh, Playclops Clubber, by the way. I just wanted to yes. really shout that out. Yes. But uh, that is a pivotal part of the book. That's the um, one that broke um, then, yeah, barriers. We, yeah. And then we head right into the antique store from there.
3: All right. Wow, they have the first Playclops. This must be worth something. I mean, other than the inherent worth of Etna, changing everything for us Cyclopes.
4: And then Paria interrupts and she's like, yeah, she changed everything. She grabs something from off screen. Oh, wait, here's a nice little Prejudice lunchbox. And the lunchbox has a Cyclops on it. It says monster. And then they walk out of the store.
3: But you have to admit things have changed a lot for Cyclopes since that Playclops cover.
4: Yeah, sure. A big change is Two Eyes found a new market to capitalize on, to make us look more like them. Well... They reinforced that Two Eyes were normal and we weren't. How? those um, experimental eye surgeries, and they walk behind this, um, this ad for an eye job, which is like this cosmetic treatment to go from one eye to two using human eye donors. And underneath that is this nose sculpting that Cyclops can do for this completely aesthetic nose that they can put in to make them look more like two eyes. And Pari keeps talking. Or the secret to happiness is a nose or the solution to a depression is a bra. There's no reverse marketplace. What two eyes wants to look more like a cyclops? And they walk past this um, other ad for this bra. It's like this lady and it says, what's the secret to her confidence? The freedom to be who she wants to be. And the bra is called the lift and separator. And it takes the uniboob and like forces it into into two.
3: (laughs) Yes. And then Latia says, Damn, you're right. You're always right. Tim usually says that too.
4: And we'll discover that Tim is her husband.
3: I love that. It's a great way to start the entire series because it just kind of like tells you like, this is what this book is gonna be about. It's gonna be about all these microaggressions that other people have to face. And, and I'm wondering, why did you why did you have this sexualization of Cyclops Be The Thing? That actually uh, was able to break barriers for them. Yeah, I've always
4: found it fascinating that um, to be sexualized is this kind of form of acceptance um, in, in society. That um, if if you're good enough to want to, you know, to have someone want to date you, then you're good enough to be accepted, um, and you can, you know, switch dated with another word there, um, but. There's something fascinating about that because it's not quite being accepted for who you are, but what you look like. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, is also some form of acceptance. So you also can't like bash it as as a way to get in. Um, it's it's kind of the the bare minimum, but it's it's something. So I thought it was a great way in because um, it's. Again, very visual uh, from a visual medium, but also um, that wreaks havoc then later in the story about how each of them has this relationship to the Play Cops cover.
3: So, like I said, we mentioned a bunch, microaggressions abound in this book. Did some of these stories come from real life experiences that either you experienced or people you know experienced? Oh,
4: yeah. (laughs) Uh, Hey, the best place to mine is your own experiences. So there are some in there, which are, you know, just picked right from my memories. um, Except I usually change the ending and make it a little sweeter for me. You know, it's your it's your chance to rewrite history. Right. Um, And then I love mining my friends for, you know, their stories and, you know, asking them to use uh, those in the book as well. And uh, it's it's kind of strange to, to read it now and like know that <laughs> so much of these are from my, like, you know, my life, but also to feel like they're so different and so far away from, from me now as well. It's kind of given me this, this kind of nice closure on some things.
3: Do you think uh, these microaggressions that you write about, do you think they're more relatable when you remove things like race and gender because there are things happening to Cyclops, not things happening to black people or indigenous people. Yeah, I,
4: I think it allows for, um, <laughs> it, it just, again, removing that baggage allows for this kind of simplification of seeing exactly what's wrong with a microaggression. Um, and then I also kind of get to put my kind of twist on it with making it about a cyclops, a one eyes versus a two eyes, so it feels so silly, um, which then kind of is the reflection of real microaggressions, kind of the, the silliness of it all. and. I had started with microaggressions because I thought with a daily strip style comic, one of the things I get to do is, you know, give a tiny, minute, like little story about the world. Hey, daily strip is made for that. Um, and I thought all these microaggressions, they'll like come into the book and you'll, you know, you'll get to see all of them. But I never expected until I made the book itself, that when you start adding up all those microaggressions, page by page by page, by the end of it, when you've read the whole thing, it's it's not micro anymore. That's that's macro, that's macro aggression. So there's like this unexpected twist to like getting to tell the story about Cyclops that I'm like, hey, it's all silly. There's no baggage, it's all fair game. And then being like, oh wow, that was quite heavy.
3: Yes, it's kind of, reading it, it's it's hilarious and funny, but it also feels like an assault on uh, marginalized people because it's like, wow, this I have experienced a lot of these things that have happened. So you began writing and drawing these comics in 2018. How do you feel about this book coming out now amid, you know, the racial reckoning, uh, the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, uh, things like the debate over critical race theory?
4: Well, first, I want to say the fact that you read it and you saw so much of yourself in there. Um, I've had that moment with like readers now where like someone comes up to me and they're like, oh my gosh, this part, like this has happened to me. And I'm like, oh, cool. And then, oh, darn. Okay. (laughs) That's a bummer. So, (laughs) um, yay. Uh, (laughs) I'm glad you related to it. And I'm also sad. Um, But yeah, it coming out this year, I, I mean, Woman World came out during Me Too, so I seem to have this um finger on the pulse maybe you could say but it's really just all based off of my life so you know life reflects art it's it, it was kind of strange because I thought like there's always some part of me that's like we're over this right this isn't going to hit this no one wants to read this this is someone's going to read this and be like this is like should be from the 1930s and then you know everything happens and i'm reminded that like no we're not past this this book is surprisingly relevant um but i still was quite as shocked as everyone else to see that um the way then it was packaged the world was like oh this book is about asian hate because to me this book was my experience that's all it was um, but i got to suddenly i was doing interviews where like the, the giant headline was all about asian hate and so i was like okay like it is that but uh i just want to make sure that that's not why i made the book it's just unfortunate that the, the timing hit that way but i'm also glad i guess that it did because it's relevant it, it's given me mixed feelings i suppose at the end of the day it's sad that it still is so relatable
3: yeah, so given the context that this this book was released in, do you think people uh, are more primed for digesting Cyclopedia Exotica now than maybe, I don't know, in 2018? I think
4: that's one of the benefits at the very least of fantasy or sci-fi is like, again, you just you get to use the creature archetype, you get to remove the baggage. And my other, I mean, the other way of just like Bringing humor in as like a secret tunnel to teach you a message, I think, is always so powerful. I don't know if it's a better time that I couldn't answer that, but I hope so. I mean, I also hope that it's a better time for graphic novels in general. I mean, I'm, I absolutely adore reading graphic novels, but it's still quite like a, a subsect in itself. So I'm just hoping in every way that this book finds the, the people it needs to find.
0: That was a Minder Dollywall in conversation with Tiffany Kamhai from the 2021 Portland Book Festival. The 2022 Portland Book Festival lineup has just been announced. The festival will take place Saturday, November 5th in downtown Portland. For more information about the author lineup and schedule, visit literary-arts.org. In this final segment, we feature two of the most accomplished poets at work in the United States today. Former U.S. Poet Laureate Rita Dove had just published her first collection in 12 years, a major moment in American poetry, entitled Playlist of the Apocalypse. She's in conversation with Oregon's own National Book Award winning Mary Shebus in an event-themed home.
5: Your title, Playlist for the Apocalypse, and you said you arrived at it late in the process. Could you just talk a little bit about how you arrived at it?
6: Yeah, I, I did arrive in it late in the process because I I took my time uh, putting together the book and I kept hearing through the years, so many voices telling me, you know, what I was, who I was, what kind of poems I wrote that I wanted to get those voices out of my head. And so I, I didn't publish for quite a while and kept the poems quietly to themselves. When the pandemic, came and took us all by surprise. I think we all began to, to look inside ourselves and try to think, you know, what uh, analyze ourselves in a way and reflect ourselves. And so that was a time when I began to put those poems together to see what they said to me, the poems I'd been writing and tucking away all those years. Because of that, they were in a way a playlist for me. And I also felt that they became came a playlist for uh, anyone else who was trying to find poems that could accompany you, not necessarily to comfort you and not to be uplifting necessarily, but to reflect what one was feeling. And hence, the playlist and the Apocalypse kind of clear, I think, uh, if there ever is an apocalypse, this is one of the ones that we're in. And it's not just the dystopian idea of an apocalypse, but also the idea that an apocalypse, uh, because of where it does come from, to unbear and to reveal. What happens in times of great and dire stress is that things about oneself are revealed. And that's what I felt had happened. And that's what I hope these poems would do. So hence that title
5: picking up on the idea of accompaniment and trying to hear yourself. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could read the poem voiceover. It's on page 96.
6: Sure. This poem happens very late in the collection. It's in the last section of um, the book. And this section is, these are the poems which are, uh, I call it little book of woe. That's a title of the section, these poems deal quite a bit with very personal uh, confrontations when, what happens when in fact, even your very body or your very perception fails you. Voiceover: Impossible to keep a landscape in your head. Try it. All you'll get is pieces. The sun emerging from behind the mountain ridge Smoke coming off the ice on a thawing lake. It's as if our heads can't contain anything that vast. It just leaks out. You can be inside a house and still feel the rooms you're not in kitchen below and attic above, bedroom down the hall but you can't hold on to the sensation of being both inside the walls and outside looking at them at the same time. Where do we go with that? Where does that lead us? There are spaces for living and spaces for forgetting. Sometimes they're the same. We walk back and forth without a twitch, popping a beer, gabbing on the phone with only the occasional stubbed toe. The keyhole sees nothing. Has it always been blind? It's like a dream where a voice whispers, open your mouth and you do, but it's not your mouth anymore because now you're all throat, a tunnel skewered by air. So you rewind. And this time when you open wide, you're standing outside your skin, looking down at the damage, leaning in close about to dive back into your body, and then you wake up. Someone once said, there are no answers, just interesting questions. Which way down? Asked the dove, dropping the olive branch. If you think about it, everything's inside something else. Everything's an envelope inside a package in a case, and pain knows a way into every crevice.
5: I love this poem, Um, and I want to ask about these ideas of inside and outside, and maybe how it moves through your work and this collection. In particular, you know, the way this poem talks about how we can still feel rooms we're not in, Mm. and that seems to pick up on all of the history, the book has moved us mm-hmm. through, but the simultaneity of being in and out.
6: Well, you know, Mary, what you know, but maybe our listeners don't know, or it's that many years ago, my house burned down. It, it, and and uh, lightning struck it. It sounds very dramatic. It's, it's, it's no fun. But so the idea, and we rebuilt the house. Uh, but the, the house was an idea when it was down and then it got rebuilt. And I think that in an interesting way, those rooms have never felt quite like home again. Um, the people inside of them and for a while that, that embodied home, but they never felt quite like they were themselves. I have felt always I've been inside and outside of them. With the pandemic, um, I think all of us feel that we have been both in tune with the vast world that's going haywire and also very, very much inside of ourselves. At the same time that this was going on, I uh, um, I have been dealing with multiple sclerosis, which has its own ways of, of letting you know that you have no control over your body or that sometimes you, you what you think you can do, you cannot. And so all of these notions of being in control and then not being inside of a room, and at the same time being able to stand back and look at that room or realize that you are inside of a of a room that is inside something else. I think that that, that whole idea is something that uh, all of us are really coming up against constantly in these days. For me, it was a very personal journey that was Triggered by the MS, which required that I learn things anew and change my strategies from negotiating, you know, walking, for instance. Um, you know, I had to learn that I, I couldn't feel my feet anymore, so I I had to learn that pressure was what I could use instead of feeling, if that makes it. And so to to retune. It also means that all of the boundaries that that we thought we had, all of the clear lines that we thought we had become wavering, change and bend. It is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just an interesting thing.
5: I've actually been thinking about this moment back from Grace Notes on the other side of the house to bring in another house poem. Mm Mm-hmm where you talk about your daughter on the terrace, drawing her idea of home. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere I learned to walk out of a thought and could not snap back the way the railroad cars telescope into a train. And just, I almost wonder if that could be a sort of ars poetica of so many of your poems, Rita, of learning to walk out of old thoughts, Mm -hmm. (laughs) old myths old false histories and if you connect that to ideas of way and toward home
6: that's that's fascinating Mary because that you bring up that poem because um it, almost for a moment I had forgotten about that poem but it is the idea of home I have a granddaughter now she is seven years old and she is constantly drawing her idea of home and that idea of home that you know the traditional uh, little house that that every kid draws with the peaked roof and all of that what it is is of course not the house itself not the structure not the rooms that we are in but whatever relationships are built in that house who loves you who does not love you who you know all of that is the idea of home and that's contained in those drawings. And I think that, that it's true that much of my work has been about redefining or, re, or looking at, again, that idea of home. While I was writing this last book, this uh, the playlist for the apocalypse, both of my parents died. They were in their 90s, and it was probably for them a relief. When I realized, though, that, that uh, of course, after they had passed, that my idea of home had always meant going back to my parents. And yet now I became home for my daughter, really and truly home for for her. Um, you know, you have many different kinds of homes and, and, and I feel like connecting with old friends and talking to someone, even virtually, can connect and warm one up to the idea of, of coming home to a place where you understood without being um, without having to explain it. I think that's part of feeling at home. And when you're a child, of course, you, you link into that old uh, childhood notion of of having someone take care of you and understand what you need. And even though I was a grown woman and had a child and a grandchild of my own, I still retained in my heart, the home, the main home, was the home of my parents, and that home is now gone. And again, I'm outside of that home. I'm not in it anymore. But I have to embody, become all the home for my daughter. It's it's fascinating to me this whole uh, the the whole notion of home, and I think I have been wrestling with it all my life.
5: It just makes so much sense to me, your emphasis on coming home and returning home. And it, it makes me think about all of the movement in your poems. You know, it seems that um, that it's always been important to your poems as both sort of method and occasion, right? Um, on the bus, driving, Persephone falling, um, even Thomas Mandelah starts on the moving boat um, things are in movement mm-hmm. um, so much of the time and um, I, I wanted to ask you about that because this book seems in movement in like a more intense way in some ways than any of your other books right it just every section is its own movement and there. Mm-hmm really juxtaposed against each other in a way that moves. Ah, I, I wonder if you could just talk about movement.
6: Well, yeah, first of all, I think that being African American, I've always felt that movement was part of the uh, of the way I looked at life. I don't know where my ancestors came from. I don't have those stories. And you are correct that the stories that I do have always began with movement, migrating, coming north. Um, that rootlessness meant that the roots had to be found in other things. They have to be found in, in music, in stories, in, uh, in dance in um, just the, the communication with other people, the movement of even language, uh, uh, talking, you know, the, the good talk. So to me, movement isn't a certain way, the most comfortable way to be. I can't stay still, even now. I mean, I gesticulate, I cannot keep my hands still. It To me, that, that feels like that, that movement is a way of finding stasis. So that's part of it.
5: Rita, can I come back to ask you about the spring cricket? Yes. Uh, because I love this middle section <laughs> of the book, and it really does seem to occupy the middle of the book. you know when I think about the movement of the book and moving, you know finally towards some of the more personal, intimate poems at the end, through the anger, toward the final, you know, experiences. Um, but the spring cricket occupies that central role. And could you just talk about the spring cricket as metaphor and what's it doing at the center of this collection?
6: <laughs> the spring cricket kept coming up. Uh, it, the spring cricket began when my daughter was about five years old or four years old. And she would go through the house singing Nobody Loves Me But the Spring Cricket. and would not tell us or had no idea, I don't know, you know, who the spring cricket was and why the spring cricket was the only one who loved her, but that spring cricket began to haunt me. So I began to write poems from the point of view of the spring cricket in this voice. Perhaps they are love poems, you know, to my daughter saying, please, you know, we love you, please love us back. But they came through the years, I mean, I wrote a couple, and then another one came like four years later. You know, another the spring cricket would speak up again, and I realized this spring cricket was was just kind of watching humanity, and and uh, making comments on the, the the cricket who we love to hear it sound his sound, but we also get angry if they're in our house. You know, we say, "Oh, where is that cricket? Uh, he's an annoyance." He's, it's a it, and a yet. There he is, small, but not so small, watching us. And so those poems become in a certain way my center, you know, they center me.
0: Those are voices from the 2021 Portland Book Festival. The 2022 Portland Book Festival lineup has just been announced. The festival will take place Saturday, November 5th in downtown Portland. For more information about the author lineup and schedule, visit literary.com. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Oleson. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.